when you take a look at what's going on currently in our country and around the world, you would have a tendency to think that there's some really bad stuff taking place that really brings a certain amount of unrest to our hearts, to our souls. We would say that there are some dark times that we're in around the world. Sometimes we might try to avoid them. We might stick our head in the sand and not really think much about what's taking place around us. But the reality is there's some really bad stuff that's taking place. It's taking place in our country. Uh, it's taking place around the world. And, and what it does is it really shows the condition of the human heart at its rawest and unregenerated state. And one of the things that you will notice when you take a look at what's going on around the world or in your own life is that in this story of life, your story, my story, the story that God has us all a part of, there are always three people that show up in story. One is called the victim, one is called the villain, and one is called the hero. Victim, villain, hero. And some of us have been victims to things outside of our control. And it's not been brought on. We aren't a victim because of what somebody has done. It's because we have been um, robbed of some things of life by disease. We all know that cancer is a horrible victim. Heart disease is a, or a, a villain. Heart disease is a villain as well. And so what we do is we go through these processes as a victim to these diseases and we fight hard and we go through all the things that we have to go through. And at the end of the whole process, we come out victorious and we say, look what I have done. I have beat this disease. I am the hero of my own story. Okay. But then there's other times when we have been victimized by other people. Other people have come into our lives, and it's a wide range of things that happen that we become victims. It, it, it comes from uh, what we would even consider maybe the least amount would be slander, where somebody's slandering our name around town. We're the victim of somebody's uh, slander trying to paint us as a bad character or it even goes to the point where we've been victimized by somebody who's come in and robbed our homes or have robbed us personally. We've been mugged and we've lost all of our identity. We've lost our money. We've lost all these things. Or maybe we were the victim of divorce or bad relationships. But we've got this whole mentality that we've been victimized by something, and there's a villain out there, and what we're looking for is for someone to come along and be the hero, and a lot of times we want that someone to be the hero, we want that someone to be us to be the hero, because we all like being the hero. We want to be the hero of somebody else's story. We want to step in and be the hero to that person who's being victimized by whatever it is. And so we have we, we feel like maybe we're the victim and the, there's the villain, but we need the hero. And sometimes what happens is, in, in the process of, of saying that we've been the victim, the reality is, is that we're, we're own, we are our own villain. We've created this stuff in our own life. 
we've made this mess. And we go, and, and so what we do, because, you know, we're really all really good at this aspect of blame shifting to somebody else to go like, they're the villain. I did this because of what they did, what they said, how it all rolled out. And so we always, we're always blame shifting somebody else so that we look like the victim and not the villain. And if we were to be really honest with God and honest with ourselves, we'd have to say, you know what? I'm pretty much a villain in all this. Matter of fact, Jesus said that we're all villains in our stories. Because what he said in, in Matthew chapter 7, Jesus came along and he said, before you go and try and remove a speck of sawdust out of that victim's eyes, you know, or your villain's eye, just think about your own eye because you've got a beam, a log sticking out of your eye. And so that makes you a villain too. So take the log out of your own eye, villain, and before you go and talk to the other villain, and remember, the great hero in all of man's story is Jesus. He's the hero. Ultimately, he is the hero. No matter how many good things we do, we only do good things because of what Christ has done in us to create in us. And so if we want to take the credit for being the hero, then we have to take the credit for being the villain too. And so that kind of leads me to where we're going to be today. And we're in our last um, sermon. I got to go back here and get my water, sorry. We're in our last sermon on the, um, finding Jesus in the book of Judges. And I got to be honest with you, this, this is not a fun passage to preach about this morning. I was telling the, the people in, in my office uh, that met for prayer, that this part of Judges, you don't find in kids' church, in, and they're doing little coloring things from what's taking place in this story. You don't find that in there. They, you, if you saw the picture of this story that we're going to be talking about, and they brought it home to you, you would be going like, all right, we're never going back to that church because those guys are idiots. And uh, rightly so. And sometimes when you read this story that we're going to be studying this morning in um, judges, you kind of walk away wondering, what's the point? What's the purpose? What was God really doing? What was the intent? Why do we have this story in the Bible anyway? Because it doesn't seem to point to anything righteous, holy, or noble at all. And so we've got this whole thing going on, and we find ourselves looking at a very dark, wicked, and disturbing narrative in the history of Israel. I mean, it was, I, I got to be honest with you, it, it would have been a whole lot easier for me to, to quit with where I, I spoke last week than to finish off the book of Judges and finding Jesus in Judges because it's really hard to find Jesus in this story this morning. I'm just going to be honest with you. It's not that much fun to do. And so you're going to hate this thing as much as I do. I'm trusting the Lord for that because I don't want to be in my misery alone. So kind of to get us to where we're at, let me just do a little recap. Because in the book of Joshua, Joshua took over the leadership of Israel from Moses. And God gave him the, the task of entering into the promised land. And the job of Israel with Joshua at the helm was to drive out all of these idol-worshiping nations. The Canaanites, the Moabites, the Amalekites, the Amalekites, the Jebusites, the 
the whoever sites, all those different people, they're supposed to drive them out of the country. They're either supposed to completely annihilate and destroy every man, woman, and child, and sometimes even the animals, or they're supposed to drive them out and keep them out. Now, that sounds like a pretty harsh thing when you think of God as being a God of love, but the reason is is because those who were worshiping idols, they practiced all kinds of wicked and evil things that would infiltrate and, and manipulate the Israelites into doing these horrible things as well. So Joshua is supposed to be driving these people out, and he, 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 he gets probably about 95% of the country cleared, and then he dies at a ripe old age of 110. And he leaves the, the rest of clearing uh, the nation of all these people into the hands of those who follow him in leadership. They're supposed to do it. When you enter into the book of Judges, right away you notice that they did not do what God commanded them to do. They did not drive out these nations. They did not clear out the land like God said. And consequently, because of that, there is now uh, um, things that are going on because of these nations that are still have their roots in Israel. And they're causing all kinds of heartache and problems. And at the beginning, we see that, that what was being said and what was taking place was just bad. And so God would bring Israel under the... They would step away. They would forget the Lord their God. They would go and worship idols. They'd perform all kinds of horrible ritualistic um, acts in the name of these um, false gods that they were worshiping. And so God... At the, be, at the beginning of this book of Judges, he would then, because they turned their back on him, he would subject them to punishment through other nations that were there that they should have driven out. And then they would get into the place of distress. They would call out for God for help. God would then bring along a judge. A judge would help set them free, drive out, deliver them. And then as long as the judge was alive, they would live and follow the things that God said for them to do. When the judge would die, they'd go back to their sinful ways. 360 years of cyclical living for Israel. And, and as, as you take a look at the judges, the ones that started off like Ehud and Shamgar and Deborah, they were noble people. They loved God. They, they lived a, a life, even though they weren't perfect and they made some big mistakes like Gideon did, even though they did, you know, all those, they did these mighty things for God, but basically their hearts were, were set on following and trusting and being faithful to God. And then you get a guy like Samson who comes in. He's the one we talked about last week. Samson, his life was an utter mess. He was physically strong and spiritually weak. And that played out to his demise in the end of his life. And now we come to this portion, verses, chapters 19, 20, and 21, and, and the story of Israel. And, and what I want you to get as the umbrella in all of this is that prior to, to this period in time, there was always outside oppression coming in on Israel. And they were under the the, the hand of foreigners. But this story, now, there are no, there's no oppression from the outside. And all these things that we take place that we're going to look at 
all come from internal pressure, internal um, sinful behavior. And it's really quite disturbing. So how did we get to this place anyway? Judges 19.1, it says this, In those days there, were no, there was no king in Israel. A certain Levite was sojourning in the remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim. He took to himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judea. Now, I'm going to come back to that in just a second, but I also want to go to the very last verse in the book of Judges 21.25. And it says, In those days... There was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. That very thing is stated even in the middle of the book of Judges to where this is what, this is the problem with Israel. They are living in a time, they have uh, stepped into the culture, they have allowed the society of the, the, the nations around them to influence them. The reason that they're influenced easily is because there is no spiritual leadership in the country. There is no king. Therefore, they did what was right in their own eyes. We're going to come back to that a lot as we go through this. But if I go back now to this, our first verse, the, the Levite that was sojourning remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim took for himself a concubine in Bethlehem. Okay, so the concubine. First of all, Levite is in a, a special tribe set up by God who were to serve as priests in the temple of God in Shiloh. And wherever the house of God is, they come, they serve, they lead the people in knowing what's right, what's wrong, how God wants them to, to do all the sacrifices to stay in tune with God. And so they have some very strict rules they are to abide by. One of them is one wife. So when you see the concubine here, He's obviously married to her, but she is a second wife. You'll see, when you read through that whole story, I'm not reading the whole story today. Go home and read this, this story. Do it before you go to, I mean, don't do it like at 9.30 at night. You'll have nightmares. But, but, but do it, you know, like this afternoon. Read 19, 20, and 21. And, and, and she's referred to in some parts as his wife, other parts as concubine. Other parts, he is her master. So we have this confusing thing. But the truth is, is that he took a concubine, which he should have never have done. And the reason why men back in those days took a con concubine was primarily for two reasons. Because he wanted to increase the number of his family. And so he would have more than one wife, and he would have a bunch of children, like we saw even with um, Gideon. He had 70 boys, you know, and that's kind of crazy. Seventy boys. He had girls too. So, you know, so you have a concubine for helping in the reproduction of your family tree to make it big and, and ginormous. That's one thing that they do. The other thing is, is just simply for sexual pleasure. That's, that's sometimes why the concubine was brought along, just because the guy just had no self-control. And so, we're not sure which one the priest is doing here, but he has taken a concubine against what God has called him to do. And, and so he, he, he's going on and he starts to take off. And remember, this concubine isn't number one. At best, she's number two. She has a second place rating. She doesn't rate very high in the family. 
The kids rate higher than she does. Most of the slaves rate higher than she does. And so she's got this low place in, in the family. And what happens is, is, is the Bible tells us that she took off. She was unfaithful to her husband. And she ran away from, home, from him and went back to the house of her father where she hid out for four months. And he figured out where she was, so he got together and he decided, I'm going to go back, I'm going to get my wife, I'm going to tell her all is forgiven, I'm going to bring my concubine back with me, she's going to come back and be a part of the family. And so he sets off and he goes out to his father's house, the father-in-law's place, and when his father-in-law sees him, his father-in-law is overjoyed. And I believe the reason why the father-in-law is happy to see her, his a daughter's husband coming is because he knows that all is forgiven now. Things are going to be all right in this relationship. His daughter is going to be welcomed back into the family. She's not going to be living on her own. She's not going to become destitute. She doesn't have to revert to a life of being a prostitute. She can go and be a part of a family and have her needs taken care of. So the father-in-law to the Levite is overjoyed to have him come back and get his daughter. And so he says, hey, let's spend a three days just celebrating the fact. I'm really happy to see you. I'm glad you're here. I'm going to feed you. I'm going to wine and dine you. We're going to have a great time. And so the son-in-law says, yeah, okay, let's do that. And so they do that. And on the fourth day, he gets ready to leave. And the father-in-law goes, no, 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 don't go yet. It's, it's too soon. Have some more bread and some more wine. Let's eat and drink together. Son-in-law says, okay, so they do. And on the fifth day, he finally says to his father-in-law, no, no, we, we have to go. He has two saddled donkeys, servants, at least one servant with him, maybe more, and his, his wife slash concubine, and they're going to head back to Ephraim, the hill country. And as they're going and they're leaving and going back, taking the woman back to his home, the Levite stopped for a night in Gibah, a town of the um, Benjamites. It's, it's a, one of the towns there. And, and he, was, he could have stopped in Jerusalem, but at that time, Jerusalem was occupied by foreigners, not by Israelites. And there's this customary thing that goes on with, within the whole nation of Israel that when one of your relatives, who's one of these Israelites, comes to your town, you show hospitality to him. He goes to the, to the city square or town square and he sits in the town square, and people from the town come, and they offer hospitality to him. You come and stay in my house. We're going to feed you. We'll take care of your servant. We'll take care of your livestock. We're going to, you're going to be fine. We'll give you a bed to sleep in. It's all going to be good. It's all going to be safe. And so he comes to, to Gibah, and he, he goes to the town center, and he sits there, and sits there, and sits there, and sits there, and nobody in the town comes to him to say anything. And, and so we pick it up in verse 20. It said, because this old guy, who's also from the hill country of Ephraim, where he's from, is coming from the field working that day, and, and he spots him, and he says, look, um, I want you to come and stay with us. Here's what he says. And the old man said, peace be to you. I will care for all your wants. Only do not spend the night in the square. So he brought him to his house, gave the donkeys feed, and they washed their feet, ate, and drank. Good hospitality. The, the guy from, from the hill country of Ephraim is going like, man, I hate to tell you, but the people in this town, they're idiots. They just don't know what to do. They're bad people. You cannot stay at the square tonight. That'd be really bad. Come and stay at my house. 
And so it says in verse 22, As they were making their hearts merry, behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door, and they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house. We want to know him. They're not wanting to say, hey, show us, you know, give us a business card. What business are you in? We want to get to know you. It's like back in Genesis chapter 3 when it says Adam knew Eve. It was a sexual relationship. This means that they want to enter into a homosexual relationship with this Levite. And so the, the, the host is trying to, to reason with the, these men that, that this is a really horrible, bad thing that you're, you're starting to go down to. This is really bad. Don't do it. Listen, I don't want you to get involved with this thing. I don't want you to do this. You don't know what it's going to do to this whole place. And so what the old guy does, he's, he's so embarrassed by what and this house is surrounded. I mean, there's a lot of guys beating on the door saying, we want that guy. Send that guy out here. And the old man, the master of the house, what does he do? He's going like, no, don't do this wicked thing. Here, instead, take my virgin daughter and the man's concubine and do whatever you want to with them, but do not do this wicked thing. Do this less wicked thing. This is horrible. I'm telling you right now, this is like, you, you would think that this is just the most unbelievable thing that could ever happen until you read verses 25 and 26. So the man, um, the Levite, that's who this man is, the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them. And they knew her and abused her all night until morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. As morning appeared, the woman came and fell at the door of the man's house where the master was until it was light. Do you get and see what this, this godly man did? He says, don't hurt me, but do whatever you want to to the woman. And he kicks her out the door and says, do whatever you want to to her. Leave me alone. And what does he do? He goes into the house. This is deplorable behavior for a man who calls himself a Levite who is in the house of God preparing people for worshiping God. And he throws this concubine, this woman, this wife of his out the door and says, do whatever you want to. And they raped her and abused her all night long. This is horrible. You can see why I hate this passage. You got to go like, what was he thinking? I mean, there's, there's the master of the house, the old man. There's the, the, the Levite. There's his manservant. There's probably at least one manservant to the master of the house, you would think that they could put up a strong enough defense that they would defend everybody in the house. They would go out. Because I'm going to tell you, these guys that are beating on the door, they're perverts, but they're bully perverts. And all you have to do is go and smack a bully in the mouth, and they're going to run and go the other way. Because they think they're really 
big bad guys and that they can do anything they want. But when somebody else, because here's the truth in life, there's always somebody bigger and meaner than you are. And they will rough you up in a bad way. And I believe that these, these four guys could have stepped out and they could have rescued the whole house. But no, the coward of a Levite, he throws his concubine out and she is just abused all night long. What was going on with her master, her husband? I'm going to read the, just the first little part of verse 27. It'll come up and we'll read the whole thing eventually. And her master rose up in the morning. You know what he did? He kicked her out the door. He went to bed and slept like all night long, not thinking about anything. He not once checked on her, not once went out to find her. He didn't try and rescue her. He kicked her out and went to bed like nothing had ever even happened. And as we carry on, it says, And when he opened the doors of the house and went out to go on his way, behold, there was his concubine laying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let's be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. No compassion, no mercy, walks out the door. She's got her hand on the threshold. And he just kind of gives her a little nudge. Come on, let's go. Let's get going. And she's laying there, and no movement, nothing. He picks her up, throws her on his donkey. She's not sitting up. She's laying over the donkey. He hauls her off to his house. He has no compassion. He has no feelings for her whatsoever. It's a dead body at the entrance of the house. And he, and he just kind of goes, yeah, let's, let's time to go home. Verse 29 and 30. And when he entered his house... He took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into 12 pieces and sent her throughout the territory of Israel. All who saw it said, such a thing has never, been, never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. Consider it, take counsel, and speak. Do you see what he did? He took his wife now, and he took her home, and he mutilated her body. And he sent the body parts to every tribe in all of Israel. All of them went everywhere, even to the Benjamites. And, and this, is, this is such a horrible thing that has just taken place that everybody in Israel is, is beating their chest because how can something so horrible take place in this country? Nothing like this has ever happened in this country ever since we've lived here, since the day Joshua brought us across the river and we established our homes here, nothing this wicked or this evil has ever happened here. And so they, they gather everybody together. They, all the tribes of Israel, minus Benjamin, they came together and decided to have the men who killed the concubine put to death. But when they confronted the people of Benjamin, the Benjamites refused to turn the guilty men over for their crimes. 
Can you imagine that? You know who these guys are in this little city, and they're going like, you've got the evidence, you've got the proof of what's going on, and you walk up and you go, we want the guys that did this. And the Benjamites are going like, mm, no. We're going to protect these bad people. We're going to protect these wicked men. We're going to say what they're doing is okay. There, there should be no punishment for this. This is all right. It's not, you know, I mean, they felt what they were doing was right in their own mind. So no, we're not going to give them over. Matter of fact, we'll, we'll protect them. And so the civil war erupts and judges gives us the indication of what is going on with this. It's a, it's a terrible thing that's happening here. And, and what took place after this is that you have 400,000 men of Israel, each one of them a warrior. We're not talking about the guys that are, uh, you know, dressing the, the vineyards, pruning the vineyards. We're not talking about the guys that really love to plow and plant stuff. We're not talking about guys who care for olives and the fig trees and, and, and the dates. We're not talking about farmers. We're talking about hardened soldiers, men who kill for a living for the name of God, who protect their cities, their towns. These are the guys that are enlisted. And these guys are skilled warriors. Four 100,000 of them show up to Mizpah. And they have this meeting at Mizpah. And, and they bring every, from every tribe except the Benjamites, they all show up at Mizpah. And what they say is they want the Levite now to give an explanation for the mutilation of his wife's body. And he comes up and he says, here's what happened. I went to this town and when I went there, the men of this town wanted to kill me. But instead, they got a hold of my wife, my concubine, and they killed her. They raped and killed her instead. And so all of Israel's going like, oh, so you were the victim in all this. And he's going, yeah, yeah, I was a victim. I was a victim. But now, I'm going to be the hero because I'm going to point to you the people that did this hideous thing. And it's not right. You help me judge what's the right thing to do. And so we have this, this Levite who thinks he's now the judge of Israel, who thinks he's now going to be the hero of Israel, and he's coming along and he's saying, this is what we're going to do. And so what they did is they took out of this 400,000 man army, they took 10% of those men and they sent them over to the city where, where this all took place, and the Benjamites, they came and said, we're going to fight you for this because we're going to stand up for these evil, wicked men. And so the Benjamites, they had 26,000 men that showed up to fight. And Gehobah, the city where the crime happened, they produced 700 men. Out of all those 6,700 men, there were 700 of these guys who were left-handed sling throwers, rock throwers and slings. You remember David and Goliath with the sling and the 
stone and it hits him in the head. I did a little research on this. As a matter of fact, when you go and you read the story, you're going to find out that those guys could take with a left hand sling and they could, they could break a hair with a rock out of a sling. Now, we have a tendency to think a, a rock about as big as a big marble, something about like this. Those rocks were the size of a baseball and they weighed about a pound. And these guys were deadly accurate with a sling and a rock. And so now you've got the artillery standing on the hilltop fighting against these guys that are coming into the fight. And so Judah, God says, yeah, send Judah as the first wave. They go in and Judah gets annihilated. I think 20,000 men are killed in the first battle. And so then, then the rest of Israel comes back and they cry out to God and they said, what are we supposed to do? Are we supposed to still fight? And God says, still go after them. And so they sent in another group of men, and 17,000 of those men got killed. And so guess what the Benjamites are thinking? We're all that in a bag of chips. We've got these, we're, I mean, we are tough dudes. We are going to kick these guys up, bring it on. We're going to kill them all day long. We're going to leave a blood trail from here all the way back to Ephraim. So you might as well just keep bringing your guys because we could do this all day long. They got arrogant, they got cocky. And so Israel, they went back to God, they cried out to God, they fasted a whole day, and God says, don't give up, I'm going to give you the victory. And so they set a trap this time. And they sent, they sent like 30, just 30 fellas down to fight against the Benjamites. And the Benjamites come out of the city of, of uh, Geba, and they chase these 30 men, and a couple of them die on the road, and they're running away. But what they also had is they had a big army sitting back over here over the hilltop, and then they had the ambush party that when, when the Benjamites got a distance out of the city, they rushed into the city, and they put the sword to everybody. And the signal was when the column of smoke comes up out of the city, that's the signal to go back and attack and annihilate them. And so they did. And they saw the column of smoke coming up, and the Benjamites are looking at these guys, looking over their heads. They turn around, and they see the column of smoke, and all of a sudden they realize they're doomed. They are finished. And so what do they do? They turn around, and they start to run off in every direction. They scatter to themselves, and they run. And they run like wild men who are going to be killed. And at the end of the day, at the end of all of this, the only ones left from the tribe of Benjamin are 600 men. And they went down to a place and they hung out and they hid in caves and in the clefts of the rocks. 600 men. Every man, woman, and child have been annihilated from the tribe of Benjamin. There's only 600 men left. Because of the wickedness, because of the evil, because of the lack of of standing up for the righteousness of God with the Levite and the old man and the slave, a woman is now violated and raped and murdered. And because she was violated, raped, and murdered, a whole tribe of women and children are now violated and murdered. One act carries through the whole tribe of Benjamin. And then all of a sudden... Israel's going like, what have we done? We've almost eliminated one of our brother's tribes. We've almost eliminated 
they'll never be able to reproduce because they have no women. And they all took, a, all of Israel took a, 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 a vow, an oath before the Lord that we will not send any of our daughters to be the wives of the Benjamites. And we made this vow in front of God and God can kill us if we don't keep this vow. And all of a sudden they're realizing like, oh no. There is no reproduction going to happen. This tribe's finished unless we do something. So now the leaders get together and they devise a plan and they are going to go now and they are going to because they start to have this little huddle. They go, hey, we called everybody from around Israel. Everybody came in. Is there anybody that didn't show up? And so Jehobus, out of Jehobus Gilead, didn't have anybody show up to the meeting. Nobody from that, tri- that clan showed up to the meeting. Nobody. And so all of Israel said, you know, we told them if they didn't show up, we were going to kill them. So now they say, take 12,000 men down to this city, and here's what we want you to do. We want you to kill every man. We want you to kill every child and any woman that has slept with a man. Any woman that is not a virgin, annihilate all of them. Only ones to spare are the virgins. After they killed everybody, they came up and they found 400 virgins And now they brought these 400 virgins and they brought them to the Benjamites and they said, peace, brothers. Hey, we were mad. Uh, Yeah, we killed most of you. So look, here's our peace offering. We brought 400 virgins. What do the Benjamites say? But there's 600 of us. Who's not going to get a wife? Pray tell. And they're going like, oh, we didn't do very good math. But we can't give you our daughter because guess what? We already made this this covenant before God that we were not going to do this thing. We've made this covenant. So, you know, um, hey, you know what? They have this festival down at Shiloh. Shiloh is where everybody went to worship God at that point. That's where the temple of God was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was, was in the house of Shiloh. And so they said, here's what happens. During the festival, they send all of their young, teenage, early 20-year-old girls out, and they're doing this dance through the vineyards. And so what we're going to tell you is lay an ambush for them. And when those girls come dancing down there, um, even though you know they've made an oath not to give you their daughters for marriage, if you just abduct them and steal them and take them, We'll turn our back, we'll go like, hmm, and we'll tell them, you're not stuck to your oath because you didn't give them to them, they just took them. Everybody's going like, yeah, that's a great plan, let's do that thing. And so what happens is that these, these 200 guys, they go down there and they, they wait in the vineyards and the girls come dancing down and then they take them. And all the men and the women and the moms and the dads, they go to the leaders of Israel and they say, wait a minute, they stole our daughters. They've taken them for their wives. And all the leaders of Israel said, yeah, no big deal. Look, God's not going to hold you to the oath because you didn't give them. They were taken from you. And they're going like, that's not right. And Israel says, well... 
Suck it up, buttercup. It's the way it's going to be. And so this, this thing that started off, this wicked thing that started off where it happened, this, this thing happened where this Levite, he lies about the events. He lies about other things. He is a coward and, and basically he's the villain because he kicked his concubine out. She is the true victim. And when you look around, there isn't a single hero to be had in all of this because now you've got an entire clan that's been eliminated. You've got 400 virgin girls who no longer have mom, dad, brothers, or sisters, and you have 200 young gals from Shiloh who've been abducted out of their homes and nobody cares. And you know why all this happens? Because it's, it's the same. Let me take you into the New Testament, Romans 12, 1 and 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the testing, you may discern what the, is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Here's the problem in all of this, is, is that the, the priest and the old man, they came and they did not let their minds be transformed by God. They conformed to the standards of the world around them. And the standards of the world around them was you can rape and you can, you can do whatever you want to to women, but, but homosexuality is bad. They conform to that. And because of, of their lack of understanding God's will for them and what was, what was good and right in the eyes of God and what God's word said, you see, they stepped away from understanding God's word. They stepped away from believing God's word. They stepped away, and what they basically said is, you know, that was true for another time and place for other people not to do these things. That's not true for us. You know, we can do whatever we want to. It comes back to they did what was right in their own eyes. And it started long before this priest, before this Levite. It started when Israel themselves started making idols and setting them up in their own homes, making ephods that they worshipped, making all these different things that took the place of God. They got on the slippery slope and they lost their connection with God because they no longer believed and worshipped and followed the things that God called them to do. They lived in darkness rather than trusting God and seeing clearly what God was calling them to do. So how do we finish this thing up? How do we, I mean, how do you twist, you know, I, I'm not a spin doctor, so I'm not going to spin this thing to make it sound all right, because it isn't all right. Here is the bottom line in how we bring this all together, and this is what I want you to get out of this is that the, the Levite and the host did what was right in their own eyes. Israel did what was right in their own eyes. Nobody followed the king. What this did is it, it, it pointed them to the, the, the true need that they were going to have to have a king. 
like David, who would rule out of righteousness and holiness and love for God. And even David messed up. And so what it really points to is, is that the only king is the king that's called the Messiah, who, be, who is Jesus, who came to this planet. He's the real hero of everything. Because when you take a look at what happened to this concubine, she is the most victimized woman, I believe, in the entire Bible. But she's not the most victimized person. Her, her death and her suffering produced more death and suffering. But when you take a look at the suffering of Jesus and his death and the resurrection, what it did is produced holiness, righteousness, forgiveness, acceptance, mercy, love. That's the difference between the two. So here's how we're going to close off today. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no, might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That's the difference between what happened to the concubine and what happened to Jesus. Because what Jesus did is he brought newness. He brought life. He brought forgiveness to us so that we can live the way he wants us to. The thing I want you to get out of this story today is not that this story only points to the wickedness and the, the, the depravity of the human heart, but it points, more importantly, to a God who loves us in spite of our depravity and our heart and is willing to forgive us as we walk into the forgiveness that Christ has given to us. So how do you go from here? We take time and we ask God, what is it? What wicked way is there in my heart that I need to seek your forgiveness for? Let the Spirit of God move you from where you are to where he wants you to be. Live in the grace that God's given to you. Understand the mercy that you have received and extend grace and mercy to those God brings into your life. When you do, they will see King Jesus. Amen? Our Father, we are so thankful that we don't live in times like that because those things are horrible. We, we are horrified by the events, but yet you did not sleep nor slumber. You did not turn your back on all that was going on around there. And you used this story to help us be reminded of your grace to us and that we no longer live by the flesh, but we walk in the newness of the Spirit, that we are now a new creation in Christ Jesus. Remind us continually of what you did for us so that we can be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We pray these things in Jesus' great name.